Welcome back to Having a Gas, the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries. And the following is a conversation with Rob Henderson, a good friend of mine and a PhD graduate from Cambridge University, whose research interest was human behavior. For more of Rob's work, you can go to substack.com slash at Rob K. Henderson. Today, we're going to be talking about one of television's most brutal, most deceitful, most manipulative, but confusingly most beloved protagonists, Tony Soprano. I hope you enjoy. We are just coming in hot this time. I'm recording from the off because I've decided I want to do things just to, I just how I want to do things. I'm uh, being very selfish about that. But the point is, um, I don't want to like deprive anyone of context. Who, who I was doing an impression of there was um, Frank Vincent, who plays Phil Leotardo, right? And I yeah. feel I feel bad. We'll obviously we'll you know get in some warm up in a second. But does that guy just play one character? They keep just casting him to play the angry and slightly like antagonistic mafia guy to fight other mafia guys because he's Billy Bats, isn't he? Yeah, that's the only. I was gonna say that's the only other role I know him from is is Billy Bats and the the go 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 get your fucking shoebox scene <laughs> from Goodfellas. <laughs> But I, I don't know if I've ever seen him in any... Other, I'm sure he's been in, but I, yeah, that's I, like... He, he's perfect for that role, though, right? I, like, that is... It, it would be it would be weird to see him as, like, you know, like a suburban dad or something. It just wouldn't... It wouldn't fit. It wouldn't. It certainly would uh, seem but, but a bit weird But Gandolfini's been in other roles, and he has done, I think, a decent job. I mean, you still kind of see him as Tony, but he has been in, like... You know, strangely, he's been in, like, some rom-coms and some other kinds of roles, and he, he does pretty well. I mean, he's, he's a really... You know, he's a great actor. Absolutely. But uh, here's, here's to, 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 to my point, there we are in Raging Bull. There's, you know, Joe Pesci. So basically, they just, it, it feels like they keep... They, it, was it David Chase said, I've cast every Italian-American in The Sopranos? Like, <laughs> yeah, he was... Uh, I read somewhere that he was having difficulty finding uh, different... Yeah, yeah, like enough, enough actors. And this is why... Supposedly, this was why he recast the actor who played Vito, right? In season one, Vito is the guy in the bakery who uh, Chrissy shoots, you know, or he doesn't shoot him. He just chases him out. He's like, get out of here. In that scene, he's called like Gino or something. And then like, oh, oh Gino, just have him okay. come back later as someone else. Yeah, I'd forgotten all about yeah. that. I was like, so why mm. is Vito in there with him? And wait, mm. why is Vito leaving? Why is he calling him another name? So, yeah. Yeah, I think they recycled him. And and yeah, I mean, they recycled a bunch of actors from Goodfellas. And uh, yeah, there's like a lot of overlap between them. So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Chase was having some some difficulties there. And he wanted, right? He wanted it to be authentic. He only he only hired uh, people who, I think he, he had, I don't know if it was him or one of the producers said he wanted, you know, people who were at least half, like at least <laughs> half ethnically Italian because he yeah. wanted it to be, you know, this, this is an authentic show. They didn't want to. I mean, I think the, the one, the one um, exception, I think, in the show was Davy Scatino, who I think in the show was supposed to be Italian- but um, at least when I looked up the actor's name, it didn't it didn't look Italian to me. And he doesn't really look, you know, I mean, he would be, I guess, maybe like a northern Italian, but he has you know, very, very fair hair and blue eyes. So he doesn't seem to be like at least a, uh, from, from Naples, the way that uh, or, or, or like southern Italy, the way the other guys are. Which one's which one's he again? Uh, Scatino is season two. He's the, the the degenerate gambler who owns that like yep. sports goods store. Davey, got the, the father of Meadows friend. Right. Mm. Yeah. So, so you know, his last name is Catino. So I think within the universe of the show, he's meant to be Italian. But real life, I'm not. You know, maybe Chase was already having difficulty finding uh, actors to cast in that role. Yeah. 
but um, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's presumably like everything. It, the scene is smaller than you think once you get into it, as in the scene of very very high quality actors of a certain ethnicity in the New York area. It, that's going to become mm-hmm. quite a narrow pool. Um, yeah. the, obviously, of course, the reason we're doing this is because a year ago, Rob, you released a not you know you put out one, you've got a good newsletter, and for anyone listening, how do you, how does anyone subscribe to that and sign up? Oh, right. Yeah. So my, my substack is robkhenderson.substack.com. So Rob, the letter K Henderson. Uh, if you just Google me, it'll, it'll, it'll pop up. Yeah. And, and you put out, you put out a thing just doing a casual cross comparison of The Sopranos and Mad Men as shows about men going through a midlife crisis, maybe having just hit their peak and starting to taper off the peak or maybe just ascending it. But this is what we're looking at. Their shows about men two men coming into their prime, living through it, and maybe exiting it again. Um, yeah. The reason that can, the reason that struck a chord with me is because I had watched Mad Men, I loved it, and we were just swapping WhatsApp notes, and you said, I think The Sopranos is probably the best TV show I've ever seen. And I, th- I thought, okay, well, that's a recommendation I have to take seriously. Now, mm. it was really weird experience watching the show because I binged, not binged, no, I didn't go through it that quickly, between September and December last year. And it was... That's a binge. Yeah. <laughs> that's, all, that's seven seasons in three months or whatever. It's pretty... Uh, okay, I'll take yeah. that. that. That's a... That, that's a that hits uh, Rob's binge meter, and it was it was yeah, eerie yeah. because it was one of those like life imitating art things. So, um, at the same time that I was watching The Sopranos, and of course one of the big plot details in The Sopranos is, you know, his relationship with his mother and Lavia being in the care home. Mm. Uh, my 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 grandmother got taken quite ill, and she passed away in, in on January second. And The Sopranos takes mm. this tonal shift from season one to six doesn't it? it gets really dark from going from being really light we'll look at that in a little bit so it was weird how like mm. my emotional state kind of just tracked very nicely onto the show at the time um mm. anyway that's just a little yeah no no it's yeah i mean i i guess yeah the 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 essay that I, that you are pointing to that i wrote was uh the seasons of a man's life it was a review of this book but there is a good portion of that book that I, I wrote about, I discussed um, in my Substack uh, about the midlife crisis. And at that point, so this book came out in the mid 70s, Daniel Levinson, he was a Yale psychology professor who wrote this book with his uh, with his team and his collaborators. And I think this book was like one of the um, texts that sort of introduced this term midlife crisis into the culture. And he writes about how men around their late 30s to mid to late 40s uh, suddenly start to have this period in their life where they start to second guess themselves or wonder, you know, did I make the right choices? It's kind of at the point where it's, you know, it would be a, I mean, yeah, it's almost too late to start, start over, right? Like you're right at this point where um, you're settled in by this point, most men have, have spouses and families, especially, you know, when he was writing in the seventies about this. Um, and so there's just a lot of sort of uh, uh, self-consciousness about, you know, did, did I make the right choice here? Am I on the right path? And both of those shows, Mad Men and The Sopranos, you and I talked about Mad Men in a previous podcast of yours about Don Draper and how, you know, the, he, he kind of peaks in season one. I, th- I think this is true for Tony, too. Um, we can talk about this, too, about when these two guys peaked in the show. But Don, I think, was definitely at the top of his game in season one. Uh, he's around, I think, 34 or 35. And that is like the mid-30s are usually when men are sort of at their peak productivity. Um and he's sort of the most handsome in the show. I know he's like, he's handsome throughout, but like, I think season one, he's sort of the most good looking, the best at his job. He's sort of able to pull things together last minute and make it look polished and professional. And then um, 
by the end of that show, right? Like Don checks into this quasi meditational retreat and he's in his mid forties by this point, 10 years have passed in season one. And like, you know, the whole show is like Don is constantly having this identity, like a literal identity crisis. But I think Mm -hmm. also this sort of spiritual one, too, about like, did he make the right choice in his life with his family, with his kids Um, and his, you know, his two divorces by that point or three, I guess, if you count Anna Draper. Um, and then technically, in yeah, Sopranos, still, you know, Tony, I mean, we'll, we can, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this. Like Tony, like is in a coma in the final season and he's 46 or 47 by that point. And the entire episode, well, the entire, but multiple times, he's like, who am I? Where am I going? And he has this coma dream of like going through this alternate life with this, you know, strange name, also this sort of identity crisis going on here. And so I thought like these were sort of dramatized, stylized, kind of embellished examples of of what the midlife crisis is like for a lot of sort of ambitious and successful men yeah and the uh, the something else that stands out is interestingly that both evaluating that particular season of a man's life from the top and the bottom of society mad men you know not quite the top but arguably they almost help nixon with his election campaign don't they so the president of the United States, it's not, you can't get much higher than that. And, you know, they go backstage to try and sign up the Rolling Stones and things like this. And of course, the Sopranos, I say the bottom of society in a kind of moral and ethical sense. They're the worst people you can imagine, generally speaking. Um, and um, yet many of the themes and many of the issues overlap very nicely. I thought that was really interesting when there's a there's an arc in season, I want to say three when does Christopher Moltisanti get made? Oh, yeah, I think it. I think it's season three. Could I should. Off, I should right also right have there. said before the off. If anyone who, because I know Rob has a big following now, and for anyone who has not seen The Sopranos, this will be replete with spoilers. So if you intend to watch <laughs> The Sopranos and do not wish yeah. to have the surprises ruined, I would stop this now, watch it, and come back. Um, mm. So Chrissy gets made, and there, it's basically an episode about a man struggling with the adoption of more responsibility. Even though it's in the mafia, even though it's crime, even though it's all completely Hmm. illegitimate, I find myself relating to him when he says, you know, this being made thing just isn't working out the way I thought it would. There's so much more work and so little reward. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting... I connected with that too. I think a lot of guys do. I think there was a... Yeah, that was a great sort of uh, conceit of the show is, of course, like the central protagonist is Tony, this middle-aged mafia boss who sort of lives this double life as a suburban dad, but also like the leader of a criminal organization. But then having Chris as a sort of secondary protagonist as like this young up-and-coming guy who... Um, you know, he's very ambitious. He won't, he thinks he, you know, there's, there's this sort of element of entitlement, I guess that would, uh, would Chris count as a, I, uh, I know there's a question mark around his age. You and I have discussed, but yes. you know, call him a millennial yeah. and he has that kind of entitlement of like, well, my uncle's the boss. Why am I not fast tracked already? He's already yeah. being treated better than he should be yes. based on his rank and he gets fast tracked. Uh, and then, yeah, like I, what I, ha- I had this experience in the military where you think like, oh, once I get promoted, I'll be making more money and I'll be like respected more and all this. And then you kind of overlook the fact that like suddenly you have people relying on you and people expect more out of you. And there's this added stress that comes along with it. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that was an interesting. Yeah. As soon as he got made, suddenly he had to kick up like an extra five G's to Polly and he didn't know how to get it. And- yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that was an interesting sort of uh, subplot, the the Chris character. But that's a re- that's a realistic element of life, isn't it? I mean, that that's mm-hmm. what's perverse about a show like The Sopranos is it 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 
resonates with us because a lot of it, the experiences they have are completely relatable, even though most of us have never been in organized crime. You even mm. talked about the, I would say, the antithetical organization to organized crime, which is the military. Um, what, what rank did you achieve when you were discharged? I was a staff sergeant, so this is like E5 under the um, the enlisted structure, so non-commissioned officer. It's like the first sort of front-level supervisory role. I understand. Um, yeah, yeah, which is, I mean, I don't know if it's like the same as being made, but it is like, <laughs> it, is, it is, there's like an official sort of threshold where like now you have to go through Airman Leadership School, you have to go through like this formalized training process, and you're like, you know, you're basically seen as an adult, like yeah. you can sort of work on your own without oversight where you're not like treated as a total scumbag the way that like really junior enlisted guys are where uh you know like your every move is scrutinized and monitored so th there is there are benefits to it of course um but but yeah i think um you know the, those are the things we focus on are the benefits of ascending up the social ladder and not yeah. so much on the, the sort of added obligations and commitments well that's something that i found in my career so far is that if you want a position, you need to really think about, will you be able to tolerate the costs, not will you enjoy the benefits? Because, mm. you, you know, anyone would enjoy any be would enjoy benefits. That's why they're called benefits. But it's like, are you mm -hmm. the right person to tolerate this cost? And returning back to the sort of the realistic nature of Moltisanti's being made, um, you know, he was, it was revealed to him he had additional responsibilities quite un the terms of which were quite unfair not that the mafia is a mm. place where you should go for fairness uh were revealed mm. after he'd already signed up so they do this ceremony and uh tony says anything you are unsure about you can back out now if you want and he goes no no i'm i'm in this and it's only once he signed up they say okay here's all the stuff you have to do but that's what life is like it's very often the case that you'll take a job and only after you've taken the job or taken on a responsibility that all of the additional like pandora's box gets opened Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was I mean, the whole show is extremely realistic that that aspect of it where you're not sure what you're getting into until after you've signed up for it. Even the ritual around um, around being made. Right. Like, do they what do they do? Like they they have him say this this very kind of uh, Omerta, trite slogan. Yeah. Yeah. The omerta of like, may I may I always do my duties and never betray my friends or something. And may like I burn that. in some... hell if I ever betray oh, my yeah. burn in hell. Yeah, that's what it was. It was just like this kind of silly thing that uh, in any other context, even in this guy, it's kind of silly. But because uh, you, I think you would expect them to. I don't know. I expected it to be like The Godfather or something like this very sort of serious, like you I don't know, Italian Sicily. music in the background. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like maybe like read a line from Dante. I don't know what like I don't know what I had in my mind, but not just like this very kind of um, I don't know this low rent kind of slogan of you know may I burn in hell if I betray my friends. Like that's so I don't know. Yeah, yeah vulgar, but it fits right. The so Sopranos is good at like sort of deconstructing what we think the mafia is and being it's supposedly you know it's supposed to be more more realistic. It's funny that whenever you think something's been done, it can always be done to a greater degree. So someone would say the de-glamorizing of the mafia was done by Scorsese, yeah. job done, game over. But Chase took it a step yeah. further. What, what's different right. about the way Chase did it? Like it's even more real because we get so much longer like of a look into their lives. Huh, that's interesting. Is it is it more de-glamorized? I mean, I thought Goodfellas, well, the, the first half of Goodfellas is pretty um, glamorous, I mm. suppose, mm. right? When you see Henry Hill as a little kid running through the neighborhood and he, you sort of see these guys through this young kid's eyes. And then once he becomes an adult, you sort of see the, the other side of it. Tony, yeah, you see Tony from the very beginning, like the first episode, he laments that like the mafia is... 
uh, on the decline and how, you know, what, uh, what does he say that I, came um, in at I the got end. in, came in at the end, right? Like it's better to get in something on the ground floor. And so it, like right away, it's sort of setting you up to understand that, um, you know, this is, this is sort of not, not the peak of the mafia. And there's all mm-hmm. these sort of signs around him too. I mean, even all of the scores that they get, they're so, they're so small, right? Like someone will like dump a dump a like a bag full of coats or something on his desk, and Tony gets excited about it. It's like this is, like this is what it is. And and, and Tony's the only one who lives a glamorous life, right? And even he is under like intense stress. But he's he you know he has his McMansion, <laughs> and he has you know I guess some some credibility to say that he's a part of the middle or upper middle class. You know, his daughter gets into an Ivy League school, but all the other guys, man, they look like like Christopher's apartment is so like it's always dark, dingy. Polly's place is so depressing. Yeah, they're all like so I don't know if this is meant to be, um, I don't know, like a critical commentary on capitalism or, or if this is just like how it is. But Tony's like the king on top of the hill and all of his underlings live in these dingy little little dwellings. I mean, I was very confused uh, when, you know, we're here to, we're going to try and look at the show through a kind of psychological lens and, and, and explore why, why we find it relatable, despite the fact that it's a life no one has ever lived. Uh, most people have never lived, but I was confused by that detail at the beginning of the show that Tony's already in the mansion, but he's just a capo like everyone else. How has he got so much more money than everyone? I think maybe that was just hmm. something you have to overlook to go along with it. Yeah, well, he's also, I guess, is he technically, I don't know if royalty is too strong a word, but his father was like highly respected, right? Johnny boy. Yeah. Um, and his his uncle. So I guess they had some influence, but also Tony, I think the whole show, it kind of suggests that the whole reason the, you know, this, this pygmy thing out in Jersey has managed to survive uh, alongside the five families in New York is because of Tony's raw street smarts and his ability. Yeah. Like he's actually a smart guy. And so, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he just like made a bunch of good decisions. Whereas you see how stupid Polly and Christopher, like how impulsive and hot headed they are. Like, you know, Tony can lose his temper, but you can also see him like actually strategize sometimes and like he'll step back and think and he'll sort of channel his anger in um intelligent directions yes whereas like like the the russia episode with the russian episode the pine barrens right like that whole episode got started because tony or uh, polly polly was being stupid right like they're in the russian's apartment he starts dropping things randomly slaps this guy across the face like starts mm-hmm. a fight for no reason then he lies about it um and so you know it's it's possible that like you know there's like there's like a structural reason why they're living in these like shitty little dwellings but there could also be an element of like individual agency and personality characteristics that lead them to like that that led Tony to be in the in the mansion and these other guys to be living uh you know in less lavish uh circumstances you think it could be it could be an expression of you know in the city of the blind the one-eyed man is king it's like generally these guys are all idiots and Tony's the smartest of them but you know, Tony yeah. has it's it's revealed over and over again in in the show that Tony has like a very very um, quickly responding flair for solving many problems at the same time for killing many birds with one stone. That's really one <laughs> thing he's good he's good right. for. And so mm. um, maybe it is the case that um, it, it, it's it's running two narratives right at the same time. One is that mm. being smart doesn't make you good, and mm-hmm. you know which is Tony's kind of dilemma. And with regard to the other guys, with Paulie, with Christopher, with Silvio, it's another kind of critique of Tony 
insofar as you, have you ever met people who only seem to hang out with 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 subordinates they only associate with people who make them look better hmm yeah i've se- i've seen that sure yeah i've been in in context where i've seen that and is tony doing a bit of that he's the one with the big house and he's the smartest hmm. of all of them that's a good question. Yeah, does he do this on purpose? Uh, I mean, he's pretty good friends with Johnny Sack, or at least as friendly as you can be with, with someone in that situation. Yeah. At least the first few seasons, right? Like towards the end. I mean, there's there's some conflict here and there between Tony and Johnny, but I think like I actually like those scenes between them because like Johnny was clearly like the 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 higher status guy in that situation as the the underboss of a New York family, and he's like has a way bigger house than Tony. It's just like clear yes. that he's. Uh, you know, he's more debonair, more interesting in some ways. And Tony seemed to get along well with him. But, you know, these he's stuck in Jersey with these guys. And so, yeah, yeah. But but maybe there is like a, a an element of that. I mean, there's there is a scene with with Carmela where she tells him, like, these aren't your friends. These are they're just like laughing at your jokes and uh, appeasing you because you're their boss. And you know, Tony's a bit irritated by this, but I think he understands there's some truth to it. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think he's. He's clearly smarter than the other. I mean, even I know you didn't watch many saints, but like they talk about this even in the main series about how Tony did a semester and a half at Seton Hall and how, you know, he's, you know, he's, yeah, he's, he's a pretty smart guy. Oh, he references his IQ in the series too. He tells, uh, he tells Johnny, but IQ 136, it's been, it's been tested. It's been tested. <laughs> yeah, I forgot um, about that. <laughs> and, uh, and so he's, he's smart. And, and it's funny. So, so there was a, there was a study a few years ago, uh, on, on, uh, mafiosis, mafiosos. I don't actually know the term, but, um, the, the basic finding was that, uh, among the, the members of the mafia who went to college, they actually did earn more in criminal organizations. So there was this link between like higher education and success in, in, uh, in the mafia, uh, despite the fact that it's like a criminal extra legal yeah. organization. Uh, and so, you know, maybe, maybe there were, uh, there's, there's, uh, that's the sort of art imitating life, reflecting life that, uh, you know, being, being smart, being somewhat educated, or at least relatively more educated can get you ahead a bit more, even, well, even in that situation. As well as being a yet another prophetic reminder. And I say prophetic because, well, maybe it, I, I get the, I, I, I get the feeling that with the politics in the West of the last six years with you know, specifically the two events of 2016 that we don't need to mention by name because we just know what they are by now. Uh, there became this, it, uh, you know, with, uh, fuck it, Brexit in my country and Trump in yours, um, we kind of unearthed the fact that people of, let's say, education, people who'd had a good education, assumed a kind of moral, you know, superiority went along with that. They assumed that to be smart is to be good. Or it, it is often assumed that to be smart is to be good, and The Sopranos reminds us that that is not the case because you can you can thrive in organized crime by being smart just as much as you can thrive in a legitimate organization. Yeah, that is interesting because you, at least for me, I get the sense that the Tony's henchmen, if they if they weren't like united and brought together into this functioning or semi-functioning organization under Tony's leadership or the New York guys under the five families and the leaders there, like they would just be kind of petty thugs and criminals that, you know, they wouldn't be able to cause that much trouble. But once they're in an organization with a leader who has vision and, and street smarts and awareness, like they can collectively cause a lot more trouble. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, like, like the, the intelligence is not necessarily right. Equal, equal goodness. It can also be used for, for bad. Yeah, which is why, again, not going to make this a, a political commentary because there's been enough of it and I'm just not that well informed. But a lot of people would kind of say, um, 
about you know Donald Trump they say well you know the guy's uh, really stupid and it's like don't don't be underestimating your adversary it's like it's a smart person who can command the loyalty of uh, a lot of people you know and so um yeah. I, again the sopranos it does remind us that it's like don't underestimate your adversary they and i'm not talking about the politics anymore at this point they will go further and you know uh, and they will they will go further and fight harder than perhaps you would wish and uh, the sopranos does escalate i think from through the seasons it gets it what as soon as it's gotten as bad as you think it's going to get it it always goes worse i think yeah tony does become i think a better leader over the course of the series he seems to make fewer mistakes and he does learn his lesson right like i think um it was it season five when he sends feech lamana back to prison uh, he even says at one point, uh, did I learn nothing from Richie April? Uh, remember when Richie April yeah. is released from prison in season two, Tony attempts to like negotiate with him, to work with him. And then by season five, what, three, four years later, Tony sort of sees the writing on the wall that he's not going to be able to appease this guy uh, who, who also just like uh, Richie April gets out of prison and starts to have this sort of entitlement complex about what he's due and sort of disrupting the um, the unity of the organization creating uh what, what what chris might call a d- dysentery in the ranks yeah and um and so tony just or- arranges to have him uh sent back to prison and so tony is smart right he learns his lesson and i guess this is this may be an interesting example of how a lot of people say the sopranos is about how people don't change or people can't change but that was you know tony tony changed in that sense right like in terms of his business acumen he did change uh but in terms of maybe his uh moral hangups and his uh, sort of ethical shortcomings. He, he doesn't, well, he changes, but, but not for the better, right? He kind of becomes more compromised over time. What do you make of that? Do you think it's a nihilistic show, fundamentally nihilistic in what it believes? Is The Sopranos a nihilistic show? You know, um, that you cannot change yeah. was one of the things. I think people do change around him. Um, Meadows, the oh, kind man, of the, 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 the ray yeah. of hope. She's a ray of hope, but even she, you know, like, like sort of at the last minute they pull back, right? Where she's kind of, she goes to college. At first she wanted to go off, right? I think she wanted to go to Berkeley in season one. They were talking about this and how Tony and Carmela sort of harassed her and pressured her into staying closer to home. So then she ends up at Columbia, which is, you know, an hour and a half or whatever away from Jersey. And so they keep her close by. Initially she wants to be a doctor, but then towards the end she ends up, you know, deciding that she wants to be a criminal lawyer. So she, they sort of keep her in the orbit of the family, if, you know, even if she doesn't have direct ties with the criminal organization. Um, but what I was thinking of is, uh, who's, the, who's the, the dumb guy um, that's vying for power against Johnny Sack? Oh, man, I can't believe I forgot his name. It's Watch not Carmine Jr., is it? It's, uh, is it Carmine? Little no, Carmine? No, 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 no. no. Uh, Little Carmine. Oh, yeah, it is. I think it's Little Carmine. The one who's yeah, a bit like Carmine. Jerry Seinfeld, but the Sopranos version. <laughs> right um yeah little carmine and he's uh he, he does change toward the end where he uh no longer wants the power he kind of he has this conversation with tony at the golf course and he you know he talks about this dream that he had about how he's wearing this uh cardboard burger king hat and how he doesn't think it's worth it and how you know in the end it's just uh like seeking for power it's not it's not as fulfilling as as you think it'll be so people around him change tony is capable of changing a little bit one thing that they do that i thought was um 
kind of under discussed just generally about the show is they save AJ from joining, right? Like Tony does everything he possibly can to keep AJ from becoming a criminal. He's fully uh, aware that so what he's doing sense, is wrong. Yeah, he's aware of what he's doing is wrong. And he he tries like, it, I mean, Tony's an interest is, you know, all these layers to him where he grooms one of his, you know, his sons, Chris, to be his uh, successor. But then his actual blood related son, he he recognizes that he doesn't have the chops for it. And even when AJ sort of makes moves to try to become a bit of a tough guy, Tony, um, uh, you know, blocks him from doing so. So I think there's like glimmers of hope in the show, but like overall, it does become sort of bleaker over time. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Well, just for, for partially for the benefit of the audience, I'm just going to show the little Carmine mm-hmm. being the Italian Jerry oh, yeah, Seinfeld yeah, yeah, yeah. just to Good. prove what I was talking about there. Yeah, That's yeah. definitely a discount Seinfeld. Um, We're at the crossroads of enormous precipice. Is that what he says? Yeah, yeah. He's he's full of these uh, malapropisms. Yeah, he, he bungles. Yeah, yeah. Mal- malapropisms. Yeah, he's yeah. Uh, yeah he's a, he's a, well. They're all kind of <laughs> the the whole show uses them to great effect. I mean, David Chase couldn't let it go. Even one of the last. I have to check. Gary's outside the door and he's not finished watching the Sopranos yet. So it's good. The, if you're out there, this is going to be full of spoilers. Um, basically, like one of the last things Chris ever says is a malproprism, but I just can't remember what it is when they're driving down that long road. Um, mm. But um, I'm sorry, I've led us off track. Uh, you are, you know, you 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 you'd gone down a very good. Oh yeah, road. about whether the show is nihilistic. Do yep. we think that there's, you know, how how bleak is this show? I mean, you see it like even even in the first season. Um, it's very bright. Like the kitchen is brightly lit. Tony's out by the pool. There's the ducks. It's like it's almost blinding how bright that first like the pilot episode is and then the last season and the last episode yeah there we go yeah you see um yeah like tony smiling like how often do you see tony smile in the see, final this, seasons right? this like looks he's... like a um this looks like a sitcom doesn't it <laughs> yeah and if right, we go, right, and it is it, go, it, go go back to the final episode look how dark everything mm. is i know you can't see this in the middle yeah. of your screen Th- i mean that's mm. the opening of season six episode whatever right. final and that's the opening right. of season one right yeah tony um yeah yeah he becomes like fatter right he gets heavier over time his voice mm. changes he just sounds like less and less healthy um his relationships become more strained. Yeah, there's just, uh, I mean, maybe maybe there's a sort of a running commentary there about like as Tony becomes a more effective and powerful mafia boss, like his moral character sort of degrades more and more over time, and his relationship with his family more and more. So, I mean, like the way he interacts with Carmela in season one, like there, yeah, it is almost like this happy sitcom family. There's some you know hijinks and some, you know, some some. Uh, what like arguments between them a little bit of conflict but overall you get the sense like yeah they really love each other and then yeah when they split in was it the season four finale like that marriage i think like um the sopranos marriage is is uh yeah just very interesting and the the chemistry and the dynamic between them yeah and we'll go back Mm. onto the uh relationships um Mm. later on but we'll just have a little linger uh for a moment on the um you know on the aesthetic quality because uh it's not just us who noticed i don't know if you can read that let me put myself in the screen again there is it I am. just me or does the show get less colorful over time yeah it's 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 quite well sort of documented this going from you know going from this sitcom look to this really really super dark show it's very it's it's, it's a it's a noted part of the 
the, of the equation. Um, yeah. Why? So there's is that is that a bit of outside life coming into it? There's a, there's obviously a psychological reality to it as well. Uh, even though Tony's like what thirty nine at the beginning of the Sopranos, you know, yeah. there's um. He says, doesn't he? So I'm I'm trying to figure out how the aesthetic ties to this this the sort of the psychodrama, and the boring explanation would be the show just grew in its significance over time, and they started to take it more seriously and try and you know reflect the seriousness that the show had acquired. Because was it you that was telling me that at the outset it was not well thought of? It wasn't thought of as a smart person's show. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think um, initially, I don't think it was meant to be, yeah, this sort of prestige. I mean, it was like the kind of first show of its kind, right? Like even the idea of prestige TV hadn't yet really taken hold until The Sopranos came along. And yeah, so that's interesting. So did, over time, did it sort of become self-consciously a uh, prestigious show such that in season one, it's just this sort of... Um, you know, what, uh, like a dramedy almost. Yes. And then over time, as it becomes, like, I guess that's, the, there is like maybe um, generally this belief that drama is more serious and more respected than comedy. And so as it became a more prestigious show, as more critics and educated people were watching it, culturally sophisticated people, they sort of leaned into more of the drama and the heartache and the conflict and more and more away from the, the comedy aspect. A lot of shows do this. I think even Mad Men, I mean, like the pilot of Mad Men, there's a lot of like quips and lighthearted humor and these kind of offhand, like it's it's a very sort of quippy show too, so that, 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 the pilot of Mad Men, where everyone yeah. has a sort of one-liner and a zinger. And then, yeah, the final season of Mad Men, it's just like, you know, you like it's just, just uh, extremely emotionally tense and conflicted and the relationships like yeah all of it right like the the relationship between don and betty in season one was like a, a nice suburban marriage where don you know he cheats on her but he still the, the marriage manages to work and then by by the end right like all these divorces and all the the wreckage of of don's life uh coming back to haunt him so yeah i think like a lot of a lot of shows seem to to fall into this where they start out like a bit funny a bit of a drama comedy and then by the end it's like almost 100 percent drama yeah, absolutely. And, you know, mm. in the narrative of both shows, both, let's say, organizations have completely dissolved by the end, like just, just cease to exist mm. almost. I mean, it's not quite the case in The Sopranos, but it effectively is. I mean, who's left in the crew by the end of season six? Mm. Yeah, well, the, yeah, everyone is shot, right? Just, um, Paul, just Paulie, Paulie sunning Paulie. himself Paulie. outside the shop. <laughs> yeah paulie is he's the he's the last survivor he's the last remaining guy i read somewhere some theory online that this was supposed to be like this um like paulie was the only one who redeemed himself by like reconnecting with um was it his aunt the woman he thought was his mother yeah and then and then decided you know he, he cut off ties and then reunited with her and so like this was like t like what like the theory was paulie was he committed like a, the first moral act of his life or something. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore the show spared him. I don't know if I buy that, but uh, I think there is something like no one would expect Paula to be the, be the one to survive in the first, uh, you know, the first season. No, no, no. But he, he is, mm -hmm. he is beloved by people because of his simplicity, mm -hmm. because of his proclamations mm -hmm. about Sun Tazu and all of that. Sun Tazu. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but yeah, uh, Paulie, with you know reconnecting with his you know biological mother and 
than you know his uh, let's say what 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 would you say? Well, no, 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 she wasn't his biological mother, right? She was his aunt, who he thought was or he was led to believe was his mother. But he meets right? his biological mother in the convent. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, oh, right. Okay, okay, right. Interesting. Oh, I think I do remember that now. Yeah, when she's, she she's tells, in she's the, the one who tells of him. cancer. Yeah, yeah, she's the one who tells him. Right, 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 right. And, and, then, re- and that's when he, yeah. You realize that Paulie is a child, like because he. he I, I, I don't. I mean that not in a disparaging way. Like he is basically a whatever he is, sixty-two-year-old, sixty-three-year-old, uh, <laughs> vulnerable little boy who just wants to be loved. Yeah. And isn't there a character yeah. with whom he gets very, very uh, frustrated and goes and like breaks his legs in season six because his like basically because his mother loved him. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. It's by the side yeah, of a yeah. river. I, mean, I should have looked that up. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys, the 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 show does point to their like early childhood. I mean, Tony most notably in therapy with Doctor Melfi, but yeah, Chris too. Like Chris talks. You even see Chris visit his mom in their like dingy house, and how you know, like Chris when he's shooting up in the car with his friend, getting high, he talks about how like dirty his house was, and mm-hmm. he didn't have his dad around, and so there is like a lot of um, sort of commentary on this. But it's sort of you know, it's it's. Um, I guess it, it attempts to like what it, it humanizes the characters to some extent, but then it also like it doesn't completely let them off the hook, right? Like Tony scenes with Doctor Melfi, where she's like he 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 tries to say like oh it's all genetical and like the way that he brought was brought up and everything and uh, Melfi you know at least in in the context of therapy attempts to to hold him accountable for his actions at least indirectly because they never actually talk about what he does as a criminal, mm-hmm. but um it doesn't completely let these guys off the hook the way that um yeah the way that that uh you know other shows might you shared a quote that i saw on uh, on your instagram from sigmund freud which seemed to become a theme that ran heavily through the sopranos and in just a moment we'll look at some key quotes from the show that informed the show's ethic but freud mentioned something about his patients or clients i'm not sure how he's supposed to refer to them always keeping something uh, fenced off like this part of my life is private we can't talk about this and Freud said mm. whenever that happens inevitably that part of their life that they can't talk about the patient will not talk about is where all of the problems accrue they all clump into that area you know and mm. uh, Tony's relationship with Mel- Melfi is underpinned by the fact that he cannot talk about the thing that's causing him to go to therapy yeah 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 so that was in um yeah, I've been reading the the introductory lecture, lectures to, to psychoanalysis. Um, I just finished them up. I mean, it's it's so funny. Like, you know, I did a PhD in psychology, and you you never hear about Freud anymore in psychology. Um, you know, except sort of in an offhanded, indirect way, you might get like a half a lecture about him in intro psych. But it's only now that I'm done, and I've talked to other um, uh, psychology PhDs and professors. Like, only after you're done with your formal education can you finally read what you want to read. Because yeah. the reading load in your formal coursework is so heavy that you actually don't have time to read for pleasure or to indulge your own curiosities. Um, and so, yeah. W- anyway, one one of the one of the um, the points that Freud makes is that often people will sort of withhold information in the context of therapy, Uh, his clients or his patients would withhold something. And he gives this example of a man who was having a love affair, um, you know, basically uh, being unfaithful to his wife. And it was only after multiple sessions that he finally divulged this. And Freud, you know, he's like, why didn't you tell me about this? (laughs) Like, you know, we, we should have been talking about this all along. 
And the man said, oh, that's that's my private business. Like, you know, I thought that was, you know, that we were talking about the things that were bothering me. We're not going to talk about that. And then Freud gives this interesting analogy where he says, um, you know, suppose that, uh, you know, he's, he's writing this in, you know, the early 20th century. But he says, like, imagine in Vienna, uh, the police announce that there's a sanctuary within the city where uh, criminals can act freely, where all, all, all uh, behavior is decriminalized. Um, and you're looking for a specific criminal. And uh, oh, and, and the sanctuary is such that police can, can't make arrests there. And you're looking for a specific criminal. Uh, well, you can be almost 100% certain that the criminal will be hiding in that sanctuary, right? The analogy being that, um, you know, if there's some, some um, part of people's uh, behavior or their personality or their beliefs that they don't want to touch, that they don't want to talk about, it's probably hiding in, this, in the sanctuary that they're trying to keep conceal concealed and, and blocked away. And with Tony, you see this repeatedly where anytime they get to anything sensitive regarding his, I mean, especially in season one, his, his mother, right? Like any, like there's a, a scene where Melfi is reading the, she suggests that Livia has borderline personality disorder and she's reading from her textbook, you know, the sort of symptoms and signs of, of borderline. And Tony flips the glass coffee table over and gets right in her face. And like, you can see the spittle, right? Like, this is such an intense scene. Like, Gandolfini's like spitting yeah. in Lorraine Bracco's face and saying like, you know, how dare you talk about my mother that way? We're finished and you're lucky I don't break your face into a thousand pieces and storms out of the room. And, uh, and, and Melfi freaks out and locks the door and blocks it and keeps like scissors under her sleeve the next time she sees him because she's so scared. And so anytime they talk about Tony's childhood, Tony immediately has a visceral or emotional response. Anytime they sort of, you know, they have to tiptoe around his criminal behavior. And this is arguably why, like, ultimately his therapy was ineffective, right? Because they really just talked about, you know, they used euphemisms and they danced around his uh, criminal life, his family life. He would talk about being unfaithful to Carmela, but... You know, so he would talk about certain things, but not others. And it's, I don't think it'll, at least, at least, uh, I think Freud would say like, this is never, you know, like, of, of course this wasn't going to work. Like this is yeah. never going to work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a reinforcement of that principle. I can't remember the Latin, uh, that Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson always brings up about what you need the most is going to be found where you don't want to look for it. And, but and with mm -hmm. Tony beginning the series by roping off an area of his life that they won't talk about means that he is never free of it. He's never released from his pain. And mm. um, the I one think the like even the panic attacks kind of indicate this, right? Like the, the panic attack, which was sort of the catalyst to get him into therapy in the first place, right? Like, very fit like Tony would never go to therapy of his own accord just because he's feeling depressed, but it was the panic attacks, the overwhelming anxiety that they, they kind of dramatize. Like most people don't like literally lose consciousness when they have panic attacks, but they, you know, within the show, they, they do this, I think, to like show the severity of Tony's... Um, uh, stress. He goes in there, and um, and yeah, they they uh, the show reveals that his first panic attack was when he uh, sees his mom and dad dancing, right? Like Livia and Johnny Boy dancing after he cuts off some guy's finger and brings home this uh, big slab of beef. And in Tony's mind, I think he was sort of connecting the violence with uh, the romance and sort of witnessing the man his father really was, and. He saw. So he, later, he kind of, is it that is yeah. it that is it that he registered his man, uh, his man, his father as heroic man after committing violence and acquiring a, mm. meat, a joint of meat. Right, the meat and the sort of um, like the the like the love and like you know, this is one of the few times that he sees his his mom in a good mood, right? Like, yeah, yeah. one of the few times is when. Johnny Boy comes home and ha you know you know brings home the bacon so to speak 
and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, and you know, right after he uh, chops this guy's finger off, and then like I think that the panic attacks and the depression are basically symptomatic of Tony being um, like highly dissatisfied with his chosen life, but you know, growing up, he felt trapped because his father, you know, he's about the father kind of pressured him into it. And Tony wanted to do it. And all, all the male father figures, uh, um, his, his uncle too, right? Like uncle junior also kind of directed him there. Dickie Moltisanti, um, to some extent. So yeah, this is, um, like the reason he's in therapy in the first place is because he's a criminal, but being a criminal is the very thing he won't talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I seriously hadn't made that connection until you were, uh, you you know, you, until you were talking about it. Just then the principle that what you reward, what you feed, will get bigger and stronger. Mm. And so connecting positive emotion with a you know a negative occurrence can often right. lead people into years of psychological distress because they keep trying to recreate that positive experience by pursuing what in Tony's case violence and extortion. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he sees the like this this brutal criminal act and then his father praises him for it later, right? Like when he's uh he's hanging out with his dad after and his dad is like, you know, I, I you know, I didn't want you to see that, but I'm glad, you know, I, I'm I'm glad that you were able to handle it. A lot of kids, they see something like that, they would have ran off or they would have peed their pants, but you stood there and you watched it and you know, like uh, basically telling Tony like this is what a man is, someone who can yeah. uh you know, observe or commit. Uh, violent acts and not handle be, it uh, affected by it yeah and so, so he, tony learns to to do this right like he and and i think like throughout the show you see him like do these violent things and he's i think he's most of the time anyway there are some cases where he where he clearly enjoys it but there are cases where he commits violence when he doesn't enjoy it and he forces himself to do it uh, you pointed out, or... didn't you? You pointed out that little moment before he goes into Davy's office, and he just lets out mm. a tiny, almost unnoticeable little, <laughs> and then goes in, yeah. like yeah. any of us would yeah. do. And oh, I've got to do this bit of my job that I hate doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not. He's not smiling. He's not. Like, there are cases when he is smiling when he beats someone up, right? Like there are cases when he's chasing down the the degenerate gambler in the pilot episode, right? Remember, yeah. he's in the car and he's chasing this guy and he beats him and he's he's enjoying that part of it. But he doesn't. He's like a, not a. I don't think Tony's like a pure sociopath where he just enjoys the violence for the sake of it. And Davy was his friend, and he liked the yeah. guy, and he didn't want to do this to him. Um, there's a disturbing. There are other cases. Sorry, go on. Pardon. I was going to say there's a, dis- oh. there's a there's a disturbing shot that we were talking about in the office mm. recently. Do you remember the first instance of where Furio gets let loose on the basically brothel to collect some debts? I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah and it, I remember this. It, that's one of those moments I was talking about earlier on where it keeps going to a slightly higher level and darker level than you think it can, and that becomes mm. qu- that's quite shocking the first time you see it because it's the, it's you know it's the first time you see a woman fully struck in the face by a sort of a, a male. Um, mm. and you know the guy gets kneecapped and all this stuff and you see this shot this is the disturbing shot you cut to Tony outside as if he's waiting to pick his kid up from bowling and he can hear the carnage going on and he just kind of he's obviously pleased about it and Gary said it's yeah. like again it's like I can't remember the analogy but it was like pride almost yeah 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 well he picked you know he picked the right prize fighter or bulldog or something to do his dirty work for him yeah, I remember he's lighting a cigar and he's clearly getting a kick out of it. Um, so yeah, there's that sort of duality to to Tony, that that aspect of him where 
he doesn't always like doing this, but sometimes he does and it's the life he chose, but he has, he's clearly conflicted about it in ways that, that I don't think others would be like yeah. others, others in terms of um, like the, the, the soprano crew, the, the Jersey crew. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do what we were going to do or, or we said we would do a long time ago. What I'm going to, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show, um, we're going to look at a few small scenes from the show that, contain you know qu uh, quotes that as far as i can tell are emblematic of philosophies that drive the entire narrative you know occasionally mm. a character more or less announces clearly what it is they're all worried about um and mm. what it is we're watching it for so let's do a bit of that and of course this is also this is the first time i'm doing this sort of screen sharing thing on obs so uh, i recognize it's a little bit small for you um but let's have a look at the first one can i try and explain here I don't know, Tony. It's like just the fucking regularness of life is too fucking hard for me or something. I don't, I don't know. Like you highlighted that uh, quote to me very, uh, very early on, or I think you may have even made a full, you know, uh, it, you referenced it in that blog post about the regularness of life. Like it's, it's a, mm. it's a, it's a memorable moment from the show for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, especially that, that first, I, th I thought it was kind of bold in some ways to put that in there, like so early in the show to have a character who's suffering from this, you know, Kr Chrissy, he says, is like, where's my arc? And he feels like his life isn't going anywhere. And he's, you know, like there's that scene where, um, he sees, uh, oh God, one of the, one of the, um, like one of the really junior guys gets, gets his name in the newspaper or no, 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 he's, he's mentioned, he's mentioned on television. I remember he, Chris is sitting alone and he sees one of these guys mentioned on television and he gets upset. He's like, well, what about my name? Like, why, why am I not getting the attention? And then, um, and so he has this sort of chip on his shoulder. This is why he shoots the, uh, the, the guy in the bakery, he shoots him in the foot. You know, he, he, he asks him like, do I look like a pussy to you? Like he's trying to gain respect. He, you know, he's like this, uh, the young male syndrome, right? He wants his respect. He's trying to rise up in the ranks. And he feels aimless. He feels like he's not getting where he wants to be fast enough. And so I thought it was bold in a way to like have this, um, like to have a character who's basically saying like, my life isn't exciting, despite the fact that I'm, <laughs> I'm in this show. Yeah, it's supposed to be an exciting show. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're and... tuning into it for like mm -hmm. action and for thrills and for entertainment at the beginning anyway. Right. And the character yeah. in it is disappointed that he has none of those things. Right. Like the show is like now The Sopranos is, is renowned for its, you know, kind of sophisticated depictions of violence and sex and power and all these things. And then you have like one of its, what you know, the secondary protagonist who's like, you know, his, his life is too normal. It's too regular. Um, even though by that point, he like he'd probably seen a lot more than a lot of other guys. I don't know how old he's, you know, what is he supposed to be like somewhere between 23 and 33? Yeah, this, that was uh, uh, Rob and I were sort yeah. of talking about this and uh, with Aaron as well at work here at Gas about uh, recently. How it's like, old is Christopher yeah. Moltisanti? Yeah, because Michael Imperioli was 33 at the commencement of the show and he's acting mm. about 24, 25, isn't he? Yeah, I thought so. I thought he was like in his early 20s when I first saw it. And yeah, even the second time. But then when I actually looked it up, there's this, you know, like the different time points, they his age changes. Um, but in any, yeah, well, he's somewhere between his early 20s, early 30s. And he's probably seen like way more than most people his age anyway, in terms of at least in terms of violence and so on. Um, I mean, he's literally he, yeah, he's he's, yeah. he's murdered someone in the first episode. 
And I believe oh, you're right. that I believe that corpse kind of li- almost literally follows him around for the next five seasons. So he kills someone, and then he says his life is regular. <laughs> yeah, the regularness <laughs> of life is There's something funny about that, yeah. Well, I suppose um, it shows that whatever yeah. whatever you do in life, it, your feeling always resets to the baseline. I've I've experienced this, you know, because I was, <laughs> you know, when in my multi-santa years, I was a waiter, you know, you were in the military. Um Mm. A bit of a different experience, but then, and I was like, Jesus, this is all life is for like seven pounds an hour. I'm carrying, you know, plates around and pouring beers, and no one cares. And if I saw mm. my life today, I'd be like, oh, well, I'm, I'll be thrilled to bits to jump out of bed every day. But you always reset mm. to the baseline. Whatever you're doing becomes normal. Yeah, one of the points that I made in that that uh, Substack post when I referenced Christopher's quote, "Regularness of life," is that. Chris, you know, he he was also trying to be a screenwriter, mm-hmm. right? Like he he sort of, and I think this was a a, a, um, a faithful representation of like the 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 young generation, the millennial generation of people who were sort of raised on television and movies, where you think yeah. life is supposed to be like the like regular mundane life should be as exciting as the movies or as exciting as TV shows, which I guess kind of goes back to our point earlier about how The Sopranos deglamorizes the mafia, right? Like Chris probably grew up watching the Godfather movies. And he thought that, like, you know, life was just going to be, you know, like, like a very, yeah, very sophisticated, glamorous, wearing nice suits, committing hits and like being around like fancy roundtables with other high powered mafiosis. And instead, it's just like he's in a dingy apartment and kills the occasional guy and then goes back to watching TV and, you know, drinking, drinking beer, like not not a lot going on. Is it in the episode called and College? So, he's yeah. ba- he's literally waiting by a payphone in the rain. That's his yeah. job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, yeah, right. That's the only time he's seen in that that show is uh, when Tony calls him. Uh, well, I think he calls him at home and then tells him to call him back from a pay or wait by a payphone and call him. Yeah, uh, and that's his life, right? Like like standing out in the rain. Like I don't think that's what he thought he was uh, getting into. Even though he, he first, sees he you know, he refers to Goodfellas and you see Henry Hill like helping someone cross the road in the rain to make a phone call and then cross the road back. Like he knew what he was getting into because he loves that movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you get, uh, I think, yeah, it's easy to get, um, yeah, the point that I made in that piece was like, it's easy to sort of conflate this or to, um, yeah, to, to have like have a mistaken view of what, what reality is that even when you watch, like the whole point, right? Like I cite uh, Robert McKee, who wrote this great book story. Um, he's like a renowned sort of um, uh, consultant for, for narrative and for story. And Robert McKee points out that like every movie you watch, um, you know, they basically like, like they strip it down to its most essential scenes. And like, you're never going to see someone like knock on a door and then someone open it and say, come on in, have a seat. They're going to knock on the door, smash cut to they're sitting on the sofa and they're getting right into the scene, into the meeting. Right. But it doesn't show you the mundane parts of like, oh, he's climbing up the stairs. He's knocking on the door. Hey, come on in. You know, can you take off your, like, they're not going to show all of this. Um, and so when we're living our life, we we're, for whatever we're inevitably comparing it to these fast-paced, interesting shows we watch, and um, and yeah, like everything is like this, right? Like I'm I'm writing a book right now, I'm writing a memoir, and it's basically the like the first thirty years of my life with all the boring parts taken out, where like it's literally like coming over this part, like any you know, it was a, sort of a Darwinian process of like me going through it, anything that was not directly relevant to the points I was making or to the story or that that wouldn't be interesting to the reader, it goes right out. And so anytime you read, like, um, uh, read a story or, or watch or consume any kind of media, uh, it's been sort of filtered out and selected for 
to be interesting, right? Whereas real life doesn't work that way. Real life is full of, uh, you know, excess text, too many scenes, like, you know, all this stuff that didn't get cut out. So in Chris Moltisanti's life, you were talking about the millennial experience of being raised on, I would take it a step further, raised on TV and movies, mm. but very, very high high quality, highly produced TV and movies. Because say mm. you're someone who's Gandolfini's age or, you know, kind of generation like Quentin Tarantino, and you've been watching TV, but you've seen it go from the 60s where it was black and white and all filmed on a mm. set with two cameras, and then it's gradually become more and more realistic. You had a time of life where there was a sharp quality distinction. TV and films were actually a kind of a bit worse than real life. Different, let's say. Um, mm. But, you know, we grew up in this environment that you were just describing where... 100- Saturated. Yeah, 100% of the content yeah. is meaningful. And in our life, maybe 5% of the content is meaningful. And we're like, what, what, mm. why doesn't my life feel 100% meaningful? And then, you know, you're bringing up the issue with your memoir where you basically, you've cut out everything that wasn't meaningful. Every moment you tied your shoelaces, every moment that you had <laughs> right. a day where you nothing You pet some happened. cat out of the street or, exactly, right? Like any, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm uh, whatever. I'm, uh, yeah, just, just getting up in the morning and making a cup of coffee. Is that Or oh, like every like shift irrelevant. at the pizza restaurant doing the dishes that you're not going to show every day yeah. that you did that and let's yeah. just just hanging this onto where life has taken us to recently uh that i think is part of what social media gave back to us as millennials with things like instagram you actually get to finally mm. edit your life so that it looks 100 meaningful and you can see through people's instagram feeds what they think their life should look like 100 of the time interest yeah so we're literally like curating the story that we tell other people uh, through through a, a series of images, you know. We, speaking of, we were talking about Freud earlier. There's a point that he makes in uh, in his essay on dreams about how you know when people have dreams, they often take um, you know the, he calls it the day's residues of like things that you've experienced throughout the day gets incorporated into your dreams. And he talks about how it doesn't necessarily have to be things from your real life. And he references like paintings, right? He says like the the Mona Lisa. Or, you know, some paintings by uh, some famous artist may make its way in there. And I remember I'm reading this and I'm thinking like, oh, Freud didn't have television, <laughs> right? Like to him, like fictional fake images come from like famous painters that you might see at a museum. Um, but but for us, right, like the 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 images that we may, that may appear in our dreams uh, that that aren't from our real life, they're going to come from movies, from TV shows, from maybe from books or comics or or um, or nowadays from social media or YouTube. Uh, but definitely, like, how many of us are dreaming about, uh, you know, Da Vinci paintings or something like that? Like, you know, in his day, you know, that might have been. But now it's just like, in some ways, like we we spend, yeah, we spend, a, I don't know how many hours in front of screens now, but it's, you know, on the order of several hours a day. Hmm. So in some ways, yeah, we, we're actually more engaged by uh other people's lives or other stories than we are with with our own. So I guess it's inevitable to some extent that we would feel um, that our lives are kind of kind of dull or or unexciting but they're but that's only because we're comparing it with what is it like there's this there's this quote that i like about how we are comparing our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel yep yep i think that's a perfect way to describe the psychological state that christopher maltesanti is in there you know he's Mm. comparing it's dark but it's still there he's comparing his boring mafia life to the goodfellas movie you know and other other Mm. movies like that where it's all 100 percent exciting all the time yeah, and you see this even with Tony, right? Like Tony, you know, the, he doesn't talk about the regularness of life, but he also, I think, like he ex- you know, he experiences depression. But I think he also um, 
is a bit disappointed, right? Like you see Tony, right, uh, in in circumstances where he's just like going around making his collections or, you know, running errands or um, doing yard work and, or cleaning the pool. And he's just like doing regular, boring suburban dad things. Yeah. And and yet I think the viewer, a lot of viewers, they would love, you know, they think that Tony's living this like um, fast paced, interesting, exciting life, despite the fact that the show goes out of its way to show Tony is also just like a regular guy. I really like this scene. This is a very small scene. I didn't notice it until the second time I watched it all the way through where after Carmela kicks Tony out and I think he's temporarily living in the pool house until season this is like early season five. I can't remember, but until he moves back into his, uh, into Livia's house, his mom's house, he's in the pool house and he, um, he breaks out the, um, the, the, the air mattress and he pushes the uh, air pump and it sits with him for like four or five seconds of him just kind of like bored waiting for this air mattress to blow up. And it's like, ev- like I've been, like everyone's been there. Like you stay over at a friend's house or a family member's house and you're just waiting for this air mattress. And it's just like, there's just this period of like, dull boring just waiting for this this uh mundane task to end yeah and uh, yes and it shows that even when you're the head of a crime family you still have to do dad shit even divorce dad Mm. shit you know what i mean it's all the same (laughs) like everyone's Mm. life takes the same shape at some point which the regularness of life let's move Mm. to another let's move to another quote because i think it, this isn't. This is the same theme expressed in a different way. I think I've got like three or four little clips here, um, and I can't remember which order I put them up in. So there's going to be a bit of a surprise each time. But uh, yeah, I believe this is. Um, so yeah, I believe this is an extension of the regularness of life idea. Uh, let's have a look. Do you ever think, think like, why are we born? Hmm. Madame de Stael said, "In life, one must choose between boredom and suffering." Go to your room. <laughs> I thought that was excellent because um, to- there's a there's a bit before where AJ goes, you know, there is no God. And Tony goes, hey, <laughs> like Tony, this awful person who abides by no moral code says, don't say there's no God. <laughs> yeah. Of all people, Tony is the one who better hope there's no God because if yeah. there is. <laughs> yeah. Right. But that's the, that's the thing. He knows what he's doing is wrong in that little exclamation. Um, mm. boredom, hmm. or yeah. boredom or suffering. Boredom or suffering. That's suffering. the theme. Who who does who does Meadow? What name does she mention there? Uh, Madam does something or other. What was let me, that? Uh, let me Google this on the side. Hang on. Um, yeah. Boredom or suffering, Madam. Something, something or other. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was Madam something. Uh, Madame de Stael. De Stael. S T S T A E L. Madame de Stael. Hmm, Who on earth is that? Interesting. I've never. I'm not familiar. It reminds me of uh, of Schopenhauer. He had something similar about um, a yeah, French yeah, woman about, of like, letters, like, Germaine de Stael. Sorry, go on. Hmm. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. Uh, yeah, it was kind of. Was that an appropriate quote to follow up with AJ? That was an interesting line, anyway, because AJ says, "Well, why were we born?" And then Meadow comes up with this. You know, it's kind of an interesting quote or interesting uh, concept, but. Um, yeah, like AJ does have this, like, I think he does have this sort of streak of of nihilism or, right, like he's, um, yeah, I mean, it sort of culminates, right, later when he has the suicide attempt in the pool. Yeah. But, yeah, he, AJ was just like a really interesting, like a lot of people hated AJ. Uh, if you like read like like uh, uh, yeah, articles was... about him or Reddit or anything, he is like a really detested character. There's a, yeah, there's a great, um, 
an impressive resource, to be honest, called Sopranos Autopsy for anyone watching who wants to get a full analysis of every episode. That's what I was doing as I was going through it because I feel like there's so much packed into every episode. I could read an essay afterwards and be like, I missed that completely. Didn't see that connected with mm. that. You've seen the whole show t- twice now, haven't you? And did you notice yeah. more stuff the second time? Oh, way, way more. Um, and then I read, like, I read, like, interviews with David Chase and, like, yeah, so I, I like, kind of read, like, the sort of secondary supplementary stuff, too. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's still like a ton, a ton that I missed, but yeah, people hate AJ and like the more, the more I think about it, the more I think it's because like AJ really is like the, the show is sort of ahead of its time in some way because AJ is like one of these lost boys, right? Where like he has, he's kind of spoiled. He's had a lot handed to him, but he's had these sort of neglectful, uh, overindulgent parents and He's probably so, about he's probably about the yeah. same age as me. I was born in ninety two. He looks about that age, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he was. Yeah, yeah. Right around there because the show premiered in ninety nine. I think he was. Yeah, probably meant to be like nine ish years old, right around there. Um, and so, so yeah, and, and and then like the contrast, right? Because Meadow had the same exact upbringing, right? Like overindulgent parents and spoiled and all of this, uh, but she excelled. Right. And this is sort of like broadly what appears to be happening with boys and girls in, in the U.S. and the U.K., like Western countries in general of uh, girls who seem to be doing uh, relatively well, excelling, overtaking boys in, in school and university and grades and so on. And the boys are more and more falling behind uh, in higher education and in employment. I think now, yeah, yeah, young young male unemployment is higher than young female unemployment, which is like one of the first times this has ever happened. Um so so yeah AJ is like a representative of this of this general trend of you know he's kind of untalented and not doing very well in school and his parents don't really know like what to do about it and I think at one point don't they he he goes to like the school counselor the psychologist and they suggest he has ADD and there's this interesting moment when they're in the the office like the principal's office and the counselor's there and I, AJ is not in there with them. Um, and it, oh, Tony, Tony says, uh, you know, ADD, whatever, like he just needs a good smack upon the head. And Carmelo was like, what? You're going to hit him? He has a disease. Are you going to hit someone with cancer? You know, like like ADD is an illness that he can't control. Um, and yet the, uh, the the principal says something like, uh, you know, although he, he may have this condition, he should still be disciplined. He should still, oh, consequenced is the word that they use, not discipline, they say consequenced. Um, and so, so there's this, uh, there's this tension, right? Of like, they want to put a medical label on him to explain his poor grades and his uh, misbehavior. But on the other hand, they do think that like, there should be some penalty for, for, for it too. And I think like, this is also something people wrestle with in the real world about what's going on with boys. So yeah, AJ was just like, you know, he he came too soon. Like if, if AJ existed today on TV, it would almost be like trite. Like, oh yeah, this is what boys are. But back then, I don't think people wanted to fully accept that this is what was happening. You were talking about AJ as a prophetic character. And mm. we talked about AJ as roughly in the, the, the age group that we're in. I believe you're, not to reveal, yeah. but you're like, well, I'm going to do it. I believe you're 33, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so we're roughly at that age bracket. And in a bizarre way, they predicted the kind of millennial, let's call it the millennial male transformation revolution of which I think you Mm. and I are basically both members where we all found, Mm. um, you know, we all found purpose and meaning not in greater reward and greater affluence, but in the adoption of responsibility and in your struggle. 
in yeah. struggle. And in your in your case, mm. that was the same as AJ through joining the military. And in my case, it was you know I was one of the Jordan Peterson kids. Well, but AJ did not join the military. He wanted to, and his parents prevented it. Right, but like he tried. Like the one time he was going to make this decision for himself, um, uh, Carmela and Tony got him a job at Little Carmine's movie studio. It was in the final season or final episode where they oh. uh, blocked him off. So I this thought, is like another I, example I, I'd of like... I'd forgotten the chronology. I thought it ended with him saying, I'm joining the army, but they, oh, oh, they switched oh, no, no. that he, he said, he did say that. He said, I'm going to join the army, become a helicopter pilot. And then this is so funny, like, because this was 2007, right? And he said like, yeah, when I get out, I'm going to be like a, a helicopter pilot for rich guys like Donald Trump. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, and Tony and Carmela freak out about this, and then they pull strings and get get uh, AJ like a you know some like whatever some like junior producer role at Little Carmine's fledgling movie studio, and so you know they, these are like the iconic sort of uh, uh, what I mean not helicopter parents but just like overindulgent parenting of like they want their kid to be tough they want him to be self sufficient and um, independent and so on and then when he finally makes a decision. Uh, to to do this, uh, they stop him and they give him some, you know, they give him a BMW, they spoil him, they give him this job. And I think this was like um, a commentary that like, this isn't completely AJ's fault who he is, right? Like his parents played a, a major role in how his life unfolded and why he is, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a spoiled kid. Kind of yeah, a, at know. every step they intervened to make sure that yeah. things weren't too hard for him. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I, I thought it was, we said, didn't we? Because I, I, um, as I was going through the show, what I would do pretty much every night was I would WhatsApp Rob like, oh my God, I can't believe this just happened. Whoa, they, <laughs> they saw this coming. This is 10 years, et cetera. And I thought the show would have been different if it was made now, because I think, do you remember AJ is brought in front of the military school chap? Um, mm. you know, he says, uh, we have a saying, be an army of one. Um, mm. and I said, if that had been made now, AJ, I think would have been kind of raring to go in, with the military. He would have been excited by the sense of meaning that came with the discipline, but that, that hadn't yet sunk into the broader culture. And so it was oh, yeah, more, yeah. it was still seen as a threat. This was, uh, what, like maybe roughly a decade or so before the rise of, yeah, Jordan Peterson and David Goggins and Jocko Willink and like all of these Rogan, Cuba all of these guys yeah. who, um, right, this was, well, YouTube, I think had just taken right around like 2006 was when YouTube premiered. So this was like right before the sort of YouTube influencers and podcasters came on the scene. Uh, and so he like, <laughs> uh, he kind of came of age at exactly like, like the wrong time, right? Like if it only been about 10 years later, um, yeah. So yeah, there was that whole generation of, of guys. Yeah, I guess like around around our age, yeah, like late twenties, early thirties, who are kind of like aimless and adrift. And I have friends like this where they're like they're confused, they don't know what to do. And um, I guess yeah, these are the kind of AJ Sopranos of the world. I mean, the guys I know weren't uh, they didn't grow up affluent or wealthy, but they also like didn't grow up with any guidance or any assistance either. And AJ definitely didn't have it, right? Like who is he going to get guidance from like his his dad yeah yeah <laughs> tony was uh yeah definitely not a role model for him and and even when aj attempted to follow in his footsteps tony tony intervened so that was like a good case of tony intervening he told him what not to do but he didn't tell him what he should do yeah and interestingly i i i, I think that's one of the 
ways that The Sopranos serves as a study of ethics because it shows you, in some sense, the right way to behave by showing you the wrong way. You have to infer that the opposite of what they're doing in The Sopranos is the right way to be in life. But you have to figure out what the opposite is. How interesting. You know, I I used to think this is... Yeah, well, so I used to think that I was I was fortunate to grow up when I did because um, because I didn't have like all of this content coming at me. Like I thought that if I had an iPhone when I was a kid, like I would have like I would have done even less. You know, I may not have graduated high school. Like I I barely sort of passed as it was. But if I had all of these entertainment options, all of this cheap, appealing content around me, that it would have actually been bad for me. It would have undermined me, you know, like I, cause I, I read, I did some things like that, that I otherwise probably wouldn't have, or at least I think it wouldn't have without the iPhone and without streaming and fast internet and all this stuff. But I think like now we're, we're, we're sort of arriving at this claim where actually it was detrimental that this wasn't available because it, it, it prevented like positive messages from being shown to young guys too. Right. Like in, in 2006, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, um, you know, watch, watch a whatever, like Jocko Willing talk about uh, the importance of struggle. Mm. Um, but I also, I, I, you know, the way that I thought about it was in 2006, I also wasn't just like inundated with like digital porn and like, you know, Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and all this stuff. But actually maybe it's, uh, it's either, yeah, maybe it may be a net positive because kids are sort of finding uh, positive role models that they aren't, they don't have in their real lives. I mean, I kind of found it through books and sort of cobbled together fragments of pop culture um, and things that I was reading and seeing, but now you can actually get like a like you can have like an online mentor who you never talk to, but you can just consume their lectures and podcasts and just do what they say, right? And that's so I don't know. I think maybe I'm coming around to the idea that maybe maybe it's not maybe this stuff isn't uh, isn't so bad. The platforms, right? They can but, be used well, for good. Well, yeah. I mean, there's the, we we haven't spoken about this for some time, but there's we, we, there's a discussion about putting together a live event with some people we know, isn't there? And I was hoping that mm. would basically be the theme that, you know, Pandora's box on the internet got opened, and all the basically all the bad stuff comes out first. And now, hopefully, there's a movement that represents a pushback against those forces. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's I think that's right. We're seeing and, and the fact that they have so many. They have such a large following, right? Like these guys, uh, David Goggins and so on. Like Goggins doesn't even go that much on the podcast scene, and yet he has a massive following. And so, yeah, there is a market out there of guys who are coming around to this. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, no, 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 this is, yeah, maybe, I think you're right. Maybe if AJ had been, um, you know, if the show had taken place in 2016 instead of 2006, things would have gone a little different. And I don't want to get into how the politics of 2016 would have infected the, <laughs> the narrative oh, of the AJ, Sopranos. No, AJ would be like full QAnon. He would have stormed the Capitol, AJ. Yeah. Sure. Would AJ have stormed the Capitol? Would Paulie have stormed no, no, the Capitol? No, no, you know, let's, let's they're, do that. They're very apolitical. This is, yeah. I, I talked to another friend of mine about this show, uh, Richard Hanania. And we talked about, we, you know, we touched on the politics of the show. And it was very like, there was a kind of an interesting apolitical time where, uh, Carmelo offhandedly mentions that she voted for George Bush, and but like, the that narrati- was the thing. Yeah. The, the narrative is making commentary, isn't it? It's saying, oh, the FBI are turning away from crime and focusing on terrorism. Terrorism, right. And But yeah, they don't really, like politics doesn't really play that big of a, of a role. Like Carmelo voting for, like most suburban housewives in 2004, I think most of them did vote for Bush. So it wasn't like a, a, a compl- particularly controversial or shocking thing, I think. No. Um, and you know, like Tony makes no comment really at all about his political views, which I think is like, that makes sense, right? Like, I, I don't think that um, like organized c- 
crime members are like talking politics much. I mean, if so, they don't, they don't yeah, pay income tax, I don't think it really matters to them. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't really affect their their day to day lives. So it's not a yeah, it's not a part of a part of it. I mean, I guess like some of their social attitudes, like regarding veto, <laughs> were were a product of their time and and place and culture and so on. Well, let's but, let's but let's, that, like, yeah. let's focus on that for a second. The fact mm-hmm. that Tony is. The because uh, I have I have another few quotes, but I really want to get this from you now. We've gone on to it. Um, mm. Let's look at the fact that Tony is basically the manifestation of the patriarchal tyrant. You know, he is literally mm. racist with his dis dis. What's the word? <laughs> Dismissal of Noah Tannenbaum. He is literally yeah. homophobic. You know, uh, Melfi says, you know, what do you think about homosexuality? He says, I think it's disgusting, and then says, but you know, lesbians are okay. Um, <laughs> Um, which was a very like mid late 2000s attitude yeah very much was yeah he uh you know he's abusive to women uh you know you see him uh, uh, what's the name of the 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 nightmarish gumari has who's reminds him of his mother gloria gloria he hit strikes gloria Gloria as if she's as if she's another man so he's really Mm. the worst he is the patriarchal tyrant, but you said, didn't you, Rob, that people are quite confused by why they like Tony Soprano, why they they relate to him, mm. and, and women find him attractive. Yeah, there was a, like if you go back and read articles from that time, Gandolfini became kind of a sex symbol, and there was an yeah, there was discussion about like how this was possible because he was, you know, far from conventionally attractive, right? Like he was balding, he was he was overweight, he, you know, he was you know, like like, and, and even in the show, he was kind of selfish. But I think like just just being um, there is something about like confidence and dominance mixed formidability. with the vulnerability. Pardon? Formidability. With, yeah, formidability. Um, and yet, like, I think like his his sessions with Melfi humanized him, right, where he would talk about his fears and his concerns. And you could see that he did care about his family. So there was this um, this sensitive side to him. And I think like that was kind of catnip for 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 some people, some women to see like like even this monstrous patriarchal figure, there was still like uh, goodness in him. And, you know, you could you can make, you know, some some excuses and rationalizations for how he turned out the way he was. Um and he, you know, he, you could tell that he really did love Carmela. So, but yeah, I think like uh, on appearance alone, right? Like it really is his character and his attitude, which I think kind of gets at this. You know, there is like a kind of a sex difference in terms of what people are attracted to. And if you put Tony in another context, right? Like if Tony was a fry cook at a diner, um, I don't think you know no one would have found him particularly appealing. But it was his role and his position and his attitude and the vibe that he gave off, um, despite being, or maybe maybe to some extent because of his um, his sort of what dominance and formidability and his uh, you know uh, morally compromised <laughs> actions that that made him uh, somewhat interesting. So yeah, yeah, that's. But I don't know. I, I, I never uh, th- thought to attach like you're talking about like attaching the label patriarchy to him. But he is like he is the, the the family patriarch. Everyone comes to him, right? Like like his sister Janice relies on him. His his mother, his uncle, like everyone around him is constantly tugging at him. It reminds me of this um this line. I can't remember where I heard it. Where like middle aged uh, middle aged people, I think middle aged men in particular, are stuck in a shit sandwich, mm-hmm. where they have their their children are relying on them. But then they also have their parents who are aging and elderly who also require assistance, right? Like Livia going to the to the retirement community um, where Tony's kind of stuck in the middle trying to take care of both sides and his his real family, but then also his uh, his criminal family. 
It's certainly interesting as well that male attractiveness is context dependent. I'm not saying that, mm. I'm not making a comment about female attractiveness, but I'm saying that as soon as you put Gandolfini in the same wife beater, but like you said, as a standing over a grill, becomes yeah, less yeah. attractive. And let's mm. talk about the the you know the uh, let's talk about Vito's um, uh, love uh, affair in the final season. He is a fry cook in a diner, and to make him the object of Vito's <laughs> yes. attractions, he's also a firefighter. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. He's a volunteer firefighter. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, the dynamic with Tony and Vito was really interesting. I think Tony Tony didn't actually want to kill Vito, right? Like Vito was his top earner. And Tony was, you know, this is like the another example of the sort of contradictions within, within characters that made them interesting was like Tony would lament how uh the the current era they didn't follow codes anymore like things aren't as good as they were in the good old days you know tony likes to watch westerns and uh documentaries about world war ii and sort of the heyday of the mafia with his father and and, uh, and things Uncle also when they were young the, those two things you mentioned let's lo- let's not get into the the sticky politics about westerns but certainly with world war ii he likes watching things with a very yeah. clear moral angle Mm. Is there politics with westerns? I didn't know that there was a you know the idea of the frontier was... the frontiersmen killing oh, Native Americans. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, got it. Well, yeah, yeah. So, so, but yeah, yeah. But the the the, the black and white morality of of the, of the previous era, and yet um, in this case, like I the at least the way that I understood it was that the mafia had like a strict code against like gay members, and and Tony was like trying to negotiate against having Vito killed. And he also doesn't like Phil Leotardo and Phil like really wanted to kill Vito and Tony didn't want to do it in part, I think, despite Phil because he didn't like him and also like multiple reasons, right? Vito's a good earner. Um, and so in this case, Tony, um, yeah, Tony wasn't 100%, I think, sold on the Mafia Code despite his uh, his protestations. And you know, like when he's the scene with Melfi where, where she's like, you know, what do you think of homosexuality? He's like, it's disgusting. Blah, blah, blah. But then he likes lesbians and he's like, you know what? At the end of the day, like, I don't really care. Like, you can just do whatever you want. Um, I just don't want to know about it. Yeah. And yeah, there were. Um, but then ultimately, he, he isn't even the one who had Vito killed. Right. It was Phil who, yeah. uh, you know, that that um, uh, the symbolic. Uh, scene of him coming out of the closet yeah and, I rem- and then killing, I, that, uh, that was one uh, of the things i remember saying to you on whatsapp i'm uh, i'm pulling yeah. it up literally in the background here which i'm being my own jamie <laughs> jamie to my own joe rogan um all oh, right yeah because i remember messaging you on whatsapp and i was like what was it you know uh you said david chase confirmed that phil leotardo is gay and i was like Really? Yeah. Was that? He was cr- that well, the, the interesting thing about that, he confirmed he was gay, but he also said that Phil didn't even know he was gay. It was yes. uh, subconscious. And um, I, I said to you, I was yeah. like, well, did that? Did the show ever even hint to it? And you said, yeah. In the final scene, he literally comes out of a closet. So that's he literally you know. comes out of a closet. And then in an earlier scene before this, you see Phil watching a bodybuilding show of like all these guys in like you know their like swimwear or whatever, like. Uh, <laughs> I can't find. I can't find. Yeah, a, I can't find an image of that. I don't know where it is. Um, it's just. It's yeah, he's watching scene, this bodybuilding it? show. Um, it's just out of the background. So Let's just take the volume down here. Phil moment. <laughs> so weird how people have just documented everything about The Sopranos, haven't they? Oh wait, is this it? I think this might be it. Actually, no. Is it on the background right here? It this is, would be wild yeah. if this was the scene where they see the. Um, He's, yeah, it is because he's consoling. What is it? Uh, um, Vito's family, isn't it? Vito's wife. Yeah. But there they, you go. Oh, there it is. Yeah. 
<laughs> I can't believe it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, Phil likes that stuff. Oh, look at his eyes. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, never, yeah. The so, man of a, or the, the face of a conflicted man. Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, so should we go yeah. look at some of the other quotes as well? Um, because I'm showing my sure. file browser here. Um, uh, so there's one more that pertains to the boredom and suffering thing. Um, so let's have a look at that. Hmm. When's it going to end? We're trying to give a jolt to your system. Give it a uh, a little kickstart. Why don't you kick me in the fucking head? What you're going through is very painful. I know that. You get stabbed in the ribs. That's painful. This shit, I don't feel nothing. Nothing. Dead. Empty. The show frequently mm. suggests that if life is a choice between boredom and suffering, they all fully choose suffering. Hmm. Because in that, in that clip we just saw, he talks about getting stabbed in the ribs. I don't feel nothing. Where was it? Fucking head. What you're going yeah. through is very painful, just, I um, know that. You get stabbed in the ribs. There you go. That's painful. He's actually kind of happy for that one second. He's talking about you feel alive when you're in an act of violence like yeah, that. Yeah. In this, um, was it was it either this episode or the next one where there's the hit on Tony, right? Where Uncle June hires that the episode. two guys to shoot at him. Oh, was it this one? Right. There's the scene where they shoot at the orange juice, the the homage to the Godfather. And uh, and it was after that that Tony, he calls Melfi after that. And he suddenly feels like, um, uh, yeah, he's sort of back. He's alive. He feels um, uh, right. I guess I guess in that moment, right, when you're when you're being gunned down, that's that's suffering. And it sort of shook him out of his boredom. Mm. And yeah, that's uh, yeah, that is interesting. That sort of swing back and forth. And yeah, all of these guys. Right, they choose suffering. That sounds right to me. And yeah, the regularness yeah, yeah. of life is Chrissy talking mm. about the fact that he'd rather be suffering than be bored. The regularness of life is about boredom. Right. And he shoots the guy in the foot and then gets excited at the possibility of seeing his name in the newspaper. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, so there was an interesting study uh, a few years ago about. Um, the link between dark triad personality traits and depression and anhedonia and like sort of low mood, low affect. And they found that so dark triad is narcissism, Machiavellianism and psychopathy, um, you know, sort of a, a, a constellation of traits encompassing sort of um, self-centeredness and uh, strategic duplicity, exploitation, you know, like narcissists and psychopaths, people generally know what, what these are. It's kind of like are, seeing yourself uh, you know, as the only real character and everyone else isn't a real character, so you can move them yeah. around at will. Right. Other people are kind of uh, exploitable uh, resources for you. And so those those things were, were correlated uh, negatively such that or inversely correlated such that the higher people scored in dark triad traits, um, uh, the lower their mood or, or rather, so which one do you think about the higher your dark triad traits, the more prone you were to depression and anxiety and anhedonia and low mood and all these things. And I wonder if this is like, in part, I don't know, this is like a maybe maybe a side tangent, but like young people tend to score higher on dark triad traits, and they tend to taper off with age. And this is also true for depression and anxiety that older people tend to experience them less than younger people. And I wonder if just over time, your personality sort of mellows out, you kind of smooth out. Um, but, you know, anyway, we're, we're watching the show. And so we see Tony and we see Chris and we see these guys who would like probably be like well into the top 1% in terms of their dark triad personality traits. 
Um, and, and they're the ones who are suffering from depression and feelings of um, low mood. And the only way that they can um, experience any kind of uh, excitement or thrill in their life is if they're uh, like in, in a sort of a flight or flight situation, in a situation when they're sort of taking advantage of someone or duping someone or um, making some kind of a bid or some kind of ploy, right? Like you see like these guys, often they're only happier, they're smiling when they're involved in some kind of scam or when they're in some kind of violent conflict. And then suddenly they feel, they feel alive again, they feel happy. And I think like a, a lot of people are like this, but I think this is probably more pronounced for, for uh, people with these kinds of traits who are yeah. particularly high. And this is something that Jordan talks about at length as well. Jordan Peterson uh, talks about mm. uh, being very careful about what would you say, building something into your personality that you can't get out again. So like mm. associating your positive emotion with, with, with dangerous and dark things and violent things. Um, at some point you won't, you won't be able to do, you won't be able to get out of that. If that's the kind of life that you've built, you'll have your positive emotion inexorably linked to things that are bad mm. and make you miserable afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah 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 i think there's yeah you don't want to well it will act so impulsively that you could also just fundamentally change the trajectory of your life um i should also be clear by the way that like the, the finding the link between dark triad and and depression and low mood like that this doesn't apply that so it suggests that people who are high on dark triad traits are more prone to depression but it does not the other way around that people who have depression are going to have dark triad traits right like people get that yeah. confused i'm not saying that like people who experience depression are going to be exploitative and narcissistic and so on it's it's the reverse that people who are exploitative and narcissistic are going to be prone to low mood and depression and i think like the the characters of Chris and and Tony are um, are sort of uh, 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 examples of this. They're all examples. Dark triad types. See if I can neatly tie up what you were describing. Is um, the it's a kind of, it's a belief that what you want and need is of superordinate importance above everyone else's wants and needs, and mm. that they are. It's not. It's 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 an appropriate thing to do to manipulate other people to get what you want and need from them. And what's mm-hmm, the third mm-hmm. thing? Because that's narcissism and Machiavellianism. What's the yeah, third? Yeah. Well, thing? so 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 psychopathy Sympathy. is like callousness, cynicism, disregard for other people. Narcissism is entitled self-importance, and Machiavellianism is uh, strategic exploitation and duplicity, and yeah, basically valuing yourself much more than other people. I mean, like actual like so so dark triad traits, like the the measures for dark triad, are, these are meant to be administered to like the general population. That all of us to some extent have these traits within us. It falls along a normal distribution, but then if you actually administer like actual um, uh, uh, psychopathy scales, and people are who are sort of diagnosably antisocial personality disorder or psychopathic like those people are the ones who who truly like don't actually see other people as as human right like if you read interviews of of um like forensic psychologists interviewing psychopaths and they'll say like well, why did you kill this person and, and the psychopath will say like well, what do i care i'm not her you know like it doesn't register that this is a human being or you know they'll ask someone um you know, like, why did you kill this person? And they said, well, I wanted to know what it would feel like to kill. And they said, well, you've already killed before. Why would you do it again? And they said, yeah, but it's been a few years. Like, I need to, they oh, needed wow. to experience that feeling again. <laughs> and so, so that is like an actual, probably a level above even a, even a Tony Soprano, maybe more of like a, like a, a Richie Aprile, right? Like, I, it's yeah. funny, like as, as a psychologist watching this show, it's like, it, for me, I was like sort of comparing like, who's an actual like psychopath here? And I thought that um, Richie Aprile for sure, Ralph Cifaretto, yeah, I think Ralphie. so. They, they, they tried to like humanize him toward the end when his son got shot with the arrow, but 
I mean, the way that he beat Tracy, he was so ruthless. Like, I don't know. Like, you, you, you would never see, like, Tony could be violent with women, but you don't really see Tony, like, beating a woman to death uh, in that in that manner. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a good point that one of the things that the show re- reveals to us is that there's always a step further than where you are, be mm-hmm. it good or bad. So there's always... You know, one of the reasons that we see it through the lens of the New Jersey crime family is that that's a kind of low-rent crime family, right? The real ones are on mm-hmm. the island in New York, on Manhattan mm-hmm. Island, uh, or in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. certainly in New York City. Um, you know, similarly, Mad Men, like we said, is about a, a not the top agency. It's not BBDO or DDB. It's this one who aspires to be. And in the same way that, there's, that you know, there's all it could always be worse as well. Uh, which is to say that Tony, bizarrely enough, is not the worst character in the show. It's a controversial claim, but to make Tony seem positive with by comparison mm. to someone else, they have to bring someone else in Even and rem- yeah. remove some humanity. So it's like true psychopathy. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of shows, like the anti-hero dramas, they do this, right? Like to make the... The anti-hero protagonist, at least somewhat sympathetic, they bring in someone worse. I think they did this with Mad Men too. Like Don was, uh, you know, he ful- he was a philanderer, and um, you know, he they, they showed like rough edges of his personality. It's not, you know, it's not a mo- it's not a criminal organization, so you're never going to see like Tony choke someone or, or Don like you know kill someone. But you do see him, you know, sort of commit some some um, you know morally questionable acts. But then at least in season one, right? Like Pete Campbell is so much worse than him. He's such a you know, he, he's uh, he's such a mischievous little guy that, like, you can't help but, um, you know, like, root for Don against him. And then they bring in Duck Phillips, and, you know, they make Duck profoundly unlikable as a character. Uh, and so you naturally are, are siding with, with Don. Um, and so, yeah, with, with The Sopranos, right? Like, they, they tried to bring in um, at least, like, every season or every other season, they would bring in some kind of foil, uh, for for Tony, where season one it was clear that it was Uncle June and, and and Livia, but it was an interesting sort of family dynamic where it wasn't really like they weren't really adversaries. It was like a family entanglement. But then they brought in Richie April in season two, Ralph Zaffaretto in season three, um, Feach Lamana in season five, and then Philly Atardo had their they had their rivalry too. And so, yeah, there was a they had to set someone up against Tony, I think, just to build that conflict and make the story more interesting. And like all of these guys were. <laughs> I mean, in my view, I think they were probably all of them worse than worse than Tony. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, everyone else who I know who's seen it fully subscribes to that. Mm. Let's look at the perhaps. I think the next thing here we've got about twenty minutes left, uh, so um, we'll mm. we'll we'll deconstruct what might be the show's. Um, message about my screen in the background here the show's master quote or like the the philosophy from which the rest of the show hails so it's very unprofessional to be by the way to be adjusting my obs screen in the background while i'm doing this but it's been bothering oh, me the whole I'm sure time. the audience likes to see the you know how the, the reality is made how the uh the fucking regularness yeah. of life right yeah yeah they like to see you know behind the scenes at satrial's pork store how the sausage is made I like it. Let's look at it. This is the quote to end all of the other quotes in the show, I think. What's the purpose? Why does everything have to have a purpose? The world is a jungle. And if you want my advice, Anthony, don't expect happiness. You won't get it. People let you down. And I'm not naming any names. But in the end, you die in your own arms. You mean alone? It's all a big nothing. 
What makes you think you're so special? It's quite the thing for um, someone's uh, grandmother to say to them, isn't it? Yeah, like if if you, yeah, I'm sure a lot of a lot of viewers can recall having those exact conversations with their grandma. You know, you go to them for some advice or some support, and they're telling you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that Don't was. I remember the first time I watched it, I just thought it was a funny scene. You know, like it didn't register to me when I watched it when I was 20 or 21. That it was just this like, oh, you know, crazy, crazy Livia, crazy, crazy Tony's mom. And you watch it again and it's like, and you connect it, right? Because now I know that like, whatever, six, seven seasons later, AJ tries to kill himself. And it's directly, I think, linked to... Yeah, that's the bit, that's the right. first domino, that moment. Yeah, exactly. And you can even see in the final episode, I think it is, where... Carmela and Tony are sitting with AJ Shrink uh, when he's in that treatment center, and uh, and it's it's sort of like this parody of like Tony's therapy, where suddenly he's back at square one, and he's like, you know, what's what's all this therapy stuff? It's all nonsense, and and uh, I didn't have a happy childhood, and then uh, and she's like, you didn't, and then Tony goes right back into, well, like I never could please my mother, and uh, and, and, and Carmela the just kind of. Yeah, glares at him. And then what it was interesting is that the therapist says, uh, yeah, AJ's mentioned your mother very briefly before. And I found that interesting that like, you know, Livia died five, four seasons before this. Um, and yet, uh, you know, and, and, and AJ, at least the impression you get when he's a little kid interacting with her is like, they're not that close. Like he sort of begrudgingly goes to visit her at the nursing home. And yet he remembers something about her enough to the point where like after his suicide attempt, he brings up his grandmother in conversation presumably at least i would think that that discussion in the nursing home about you know it's all a big nothing like that probably that line stuck with him over time yeah absolutely and this mm. this image i've pulled up here that's one of tony's dreams isn't it and it kind of mm. it, it, chase does not explain everything that happens in the sopranos and tony has this dream and it happens and you move on and mm. in 2003 when it aired maybe for um, you wouldn't have been able to just go straight online and read an essay explaining it to you. But this, mm. in retrospect, is a fairly clear visual representation of Lavia's big nothing philosophy. Like it's a truly destructive and like ghoulish philo uh, philosophy mm. that, that like leaves mm. nothing in its wake. And it's clear that, you know, she's, it's kind of an image of heaven that she's turned away from there, assuming that's meant to be Lavia. Oh, how interesting. So, so the. Um, story above her, the floor above her is is full of light, and mm. she herself is covered in darkness, and she's sort of descending down yeah. into the darkness too, and stopping halfway uh, as well. Or because it's interesting, because the 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 um, area underneath her is light too. So in a way, she, you could say like she's sort of bringing darkness with her, like she is the darkness, right? Because it was light above her. And now she's sort of descending down, but downstairs it's also light. It's just yeah. her and the, the the bottom half of the staircase that's dark, and so she is like herself, the big nothing, or full of. She's like this sort of black hole that sucks all of the joy around yeah. her. It's what it's one of the reasons yeah. I'm grateful for my actual grandmother because she was the kind of the anti Livia, like the complete opposite. So you know, grew up in wartime England. Uh, didn't get the life she wanted and probably could have achieved because she was the oldest of many siblings. And so 
she had to look after the other siblings. You know, she was she passed exams to get into good schools and then couldn't go because she had to look after the siblings. And so, you know, mm. that was her life. And uh, in her sort of last few years, I would go over and for a day at a time and just ask her about life. And it was always about why things were worth doing and why the right thing was always worth doing. And so I was quite grateful for that because you can see through, you know, this show, one of the things it's evaluating or one of the things it's exploring is how the, what, the, the philosophies of your... Uh, ancestors can propagate down the family tree and influence mm. ev- and, and influence everyone's behavior. Right. Yeah, you see this. Um, like one of Livia's other famous lines is "Poor you." Like anytime someone says, you know, something about their life that isn't going well, she, "Oh, poor you." And yeah. then you see Tony carry this forward and say it to Carmela. And I don't recall if he ever says it to any of the kids specifically. It would be more interesting if he didn't, because later you see AJ tell Meadow, poor you. And it would be interesting if he didn't, if if Tony never even directed it, all he did was overhear his father say it to his mother and then carry that forward with him through the generations, right? Like, and, and so, so yeah, this sort of uh, the shadow of Livia hanging over like multiple generations of the family. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like that relationship was, you know, yeah, yeah, like Tony's relationship with both his mother and his father, like those were um, like surprisingly layered and sophisticated. And like, yeah, I don't know if, if David Chase like started out like knowing all of this backstory, if he kind of went along with it and had a vague idea, because supposedly Olivia is based on his own mother. And oh, right. Tony's uh, depression is like loosely informed by Chase's own experiences with depression. And so he like, yeah, I think he, you know, he a lot of artists, you know, they sort of draw from their own life. And um yeah, like the Livia character, I thought was, um, you know, I was reading a, a few months ago, this idea of uh, the, the death mother in Jungian uh, psychoanalysis. Yeah. And this idea of the death mother is uh, it was um, developed and popularized by uh, her name, I think is Marion. Let me actually have it right here. I just want to make sure it's name right. Marion Woodman. Uh, yeah, she advanced the archetype of the, the death mother. And like the death mother, there are sort of like, there are two aspects to it. There's like the sort of Jungian psychoanalytic aspect of it. And then there's the evolutionary psychology aspect, but the, um, the evolutionary psychology aspect is basically like the, the, the idea is that, um, actually throughout evolutionary history, mothers did not always, um, feel unconditional love for each one of their offspring. And that often they had to make very difficult decisions, right? Like if you can imagine in the human ancestral environment, they had to make difficult choices about, um, like how much, re, you know, how many resources to invest in any specific kid, they had to calculate, okay, well, do I have a provider to take care of me? Um, you know, what are, what, like, how many other children do I have to feed? Like, they had to make all of these difficult decisions. And one of the things that, um, that Woodman advances um, in some of her papers is that um, a lot of the myths and folklore uh, that we know about, about like, uh, like changelings or children being abducted, or being abandoned, and so on. Um, a lot of this developed out of um, basically women like having to make the difficult decision to like abandon their children or leave them to die or something like that. Um, and and so so that's like one one aspect of it. And then that's like the aspect for the perspective of the mother. And then from the child, um, there's this sort of union element of it where um, they fear the death mother, right? Like they're on some level, they're aware that like potentially if they're not seen as valuable enough that they could be abandoned or neglected or killed or so on. And so for them, they have this terror of being left. And so, you know, like the, the archetype of the death mother is like this sort of cold, 
um, unfeeling, uncaring woman. And so, yeah, Marion Woodman, she sort of suggests that um, uh, this archetype arose out of there's sort of the great mother archetype of like the the wonderful, caring, nurturing mother. But then there's the death mother of like this cold, unfeeling, uh, unloving mother. And I think Livia was supposed to be a representative of the, like the Jungian death mother and of like this this person that sort of materially provided for Tony. Um, right. Like he, you know, he, he, he never went hungry. Right? He was, he was fat even when he was a little kid, but, but emotionally he was starved, right? He was starved for affection and you, you actually, you never see Livia show him any sort of, um, like express any warmth or positivity at him at all. Um, and even when, when, um, when Melfi at one point asks Tony, you know, do you have any positive memories of your mother? And he said, one time my dad tripped down the stairs and we were all laughing and my mom was laughing and it was just a really nice moment. <laughs> and that is like the one positive thing that he can remember about her was, um, you know, laughing at someone else's misfortune. Um, and you see this. What's interesting is that later you see. Yeah. You're going to mention the same thing I was. Yeah. She laughs at him for falling down the stairs. Yeah. yeah, and except there's so the dark like, yeah. thing that he falls, he hits the ground and, and like a nine millimeter slides out of his like jacket and across and she doesn't notice it. Hmm. Complete blind spot. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, oh, that, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that part, but that's when Olivia can experience joy. And so, yeah, I think like, you know, there's like a lot of Freudian influence um, with like the dream sequences and and Melfi, I think, has like a sort of psychodynamic approach with Tony. But then, uh, yeah, the, the Jungian element of it, too, of like the the the, the, the symbolism of, of Livia as uh, this this fearful presence, I thought was uh, in that image that you showed, like really, really cool. And I, so, so hopefully by this point, like I'm writing a piece about this, hopefully by the time you release this, like the piece will finally be written up and fully, uh, fully available. And for anyone listening, the piece isn't just going to be a rehash of what we've spoken about here. It's going to be quite an interesting, if you're maintaining the, the draft that you sent me, if it's going to be the same. Mm. Um, it's a comparative analysis of Tony's relationship with his two sons, let's say, with the, mm. the suffocation of Christopher and the rescuing oh. of AJ. Right. Well, he, he suffocates one son and then he rescues the other one from being suffocated which is also yeah. interesting, right? Within yeah. within an episode of each other, right? Like it was, yeah, they show always do this, right? Where, where like, right when you hate a character, they, they sort of show you the, 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 the human aspect of them where I think it's literally the very next episode after Tony kills Christopher. And like, at least for me, like I think most people when they saw this, they were just shocked. And then an episode later, AJ tries to kill himself and Tony saves him. And he's like, he's breaking down crying with his son, right? Like after he, he pulls him out of the pool and he's crying. Um, and then suddenly you're like, oh, like Tony, you know, it's impossible to hate him completely after that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you pointed out, didn't you, by comparison to Don Draper, uh, Tony actually appears to care about his children, which is bizarre. Oh, yeah. 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 We talked about who's worst, uh, Don or Tony. And uh, like Tony, Tony commits like more egregious acts, but he also seems to um, like... Yeah, you, you get the feeling that like Tony loves Carmela and he loves his kids. Um, whereas Don, like, okay, so when Carmela left Tony, Tony did everything he could to get back with her, like in his own sort of scheming, duplicitous way. He was like withholding money from her and he would like barge in and out of the house at all hours. Like, you know, he, he was trying to like, you know, like impose himself on her life. 
uh, and and try to re- reconcile. Whereas with Dawn, like he, when Betty like said she was going to leave it, it was a very sort of half hearted like I'm not going to let you break up this family, and then like kind of kind of does, <laughs> and then he moves into yeah. his his apartment in New York, and like he doesn't really fight for his family the way that Tony does. Again, like not you know, Tony doesn't do it in a particularly honorable way, but you could tell like he wants to keep this this unit together the way that Don really didn't seem to want to. Absolutely, and so um, we've hit we hit the one we're about to hit the one fifty mark. So why don't we just take ten minutes now to get out of the Sopranos? It's not really hit any conclusions there. It's just been a good good discussion and a good like look look at it from many angles. It's appropriate as well because the Sopranos really offers no conclusions. That's one of the disappointing, hmm. not disappointing, but it's one of the things that throws you at first. You're like, where's wait, where's the Where's the big conclusive ending and the nice tied up in a bow? Nothing's, not just the show itself with regard to the famous ending, but also just everything in it. Almost every character has just an an ambiguous end. It's not clear that it was for any great purpose. Do you think, uh, do you think Tony died? Do you think, uh, yeah, at the end, that final scene, you think he was shot? Yeah, I think it'd be a weird ending if anything else was the case. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Especially I guess, with like, what we- I, uh, you gone. Well, I was just gonna say, like, I can I can see an argument being made either way. I think I kind of looped around where, like, initially when I first watched it, I wasn't sure what was going on. But um, when someone told me he died at the end, I immediately believed him. I'm like, oh yeah, that actually makes sense. Uh, and then um, I kind of came back around the other. I'm like, well, yeah, that, that like it's not clear. Um, you know, it's not like, well, like, why, why end it that way? And I had some doubts. And then like, once I did like this deep dive the second time around, I think what sold it for me was Meadow, um, not being there. The right? guardian like, angel. The fact that it, it, yeah. The guardian angel, she was the guardian angel and the fact that she wasn't there and that the show spent so much time, like the, the like these precious few seconds of the, the final episode of the show, it spends an, an, an inordinate amount of time on her trying to parallel park, right? And like, there's all this tension building around it, and then I, and then I think like the reason you feel this sense of, of anxiety and tension is, perhaps on some level, uh, maybe this is reaching, but on some level you're aware that like Meadow is like the sort of like Tony's gateway to a normal life. She's been yeah this sort of protector, this watchful sort of person that's that that like helps to redeem Tony, right? Like she's the person who pulled Tony out of his coma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there it is. But yeah, she's the one who's like screaming, daddy, daddy. And he's, um, you know, he's in the coma and he's Kevin Finnerty and he's about to die. And uh, and it's her voice that pulls him out of it. Um, And uh, did you mention the season one, uh, the season one college episode where he did you mention this already? He's always he's almost Mm. assassinated. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. He's almost assassinated by. um, Oh, God, what's the guy? Yeah, yeah, the the, the college episode and Mm. Meadow. The only reason he's not shot is because Meadow is standing with him. Uh, the FBI bugs the lamp in the basement and Meadow takes it to her dorm room at Columbia. And so they're like, and then just generally, right? Like Meadow is like the hope for the family, right? Like she's the upwardly mobile, educated uh, person who is like, who who has the, a real chance to like get away from from um, this sort of like being mired in crime and and all of the sort of dysfunction uh, around the family. Like, like AJ says, poor you, you never see, hear Meadow um, repeat any of her family's like toxic um, slogans, right? Like Meadow does seem to stand apart from them in a unique way, and the fact that she's not there with them, I think, yeah, is, it's represented is in this moment. She's trying yeah. to straighten out whilst everyone else is still together. She's apart, trying to straighten out. 
Oh man, this is this is deep. Yeah, this yeah, guy yeah. looks like think... that guy. That guy we just saw looks like Volodymyr Zelensky a little bit. Hang on, <laughs> like a tall You're Zelensky. Right, I think... Yeah, yeah, it does. It does look <laughs> like him with an extra five or six inches. Yeah, yeah. 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 The reason I was huh. put, con- convinced about the ending in the way that I was that, that I think it means what it means. Um, is because you see a succession, you hear a bell ring, you see Tony mm-hmm. look up, and then you see his point of view. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. And and also, let's notice that both Back to Sopranos and Mad Men, they both end with a bell ringing. Because you remember with Draper, oh. it's like the guy says, a new you. Ding. Oh, man. That is wild. We know for whom the bell tolls. I wonder if, did Weiner do that on purpose? That would be. Cra- I mean, either way, whether it's on purpose or not, I think it's it's interesting. Yeah, I'd never I'd never considered that. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, uh, yeah, those shows the, the, those shows are like, um, yeah, they're 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 connected, right? Weiner sort of got his his start on on The Sopranos, so yeah, yeah. Um, so so open ended. I think it mm-hmm. means I, I think it is final. I think it is conclusive for the reason that you know you hear the bell, you see Tony's point of view, and then you see nothing. And of course, everyone's mm-hmm. pointed out that it connects back to is it Bobby Bacalos? You probably don't even hear it happen. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And then the the beginning of the episode of the final episode, which you showed earlier, Tony's laying down, and there's the 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 uh the music in the background it's reminiscent of a funeral and so yeah i think like the sort of the death symbolism is hanging over the entire show and and even like i mean even the pilot episode where tony says i came in at the end is suggestive that maybe david chase knew like right away that like the show was going to end with tony's death right like coming in at the end means like you know we're sort of watching tony's like final days throughout this series we're sort of coming in at the end of his life yeah 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 the opening scene very much does look like it's a it looks like one of the open coffins the open caskets mm. as you say in the u.s yeah yeah, the open caskets right um we're gonna have to leave it there um sure. in the same way the sopranos did shock ending right there oh, yeah, um yeah. Uh, the Rob, just the uh bring the bring the audience up to date about the book what's going on because i've seen the front cover looks pretty cool oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'll um I'll get you a more polished version. Uh, yeah, the book's coming out. Uh, well, I haven't actually made a formal announcement. I'll make an announcement. It'll be out next year. We're sort of okay. uh, in the process. I'm uh, in the blurb gathering process now. Yeah, the book book publishing, man, it is, uh, it's it's a wild ride. It's a lot of like hurry up and wait. Uh, you know, <laughs> frantically write this thing. You're doing all this stuff. There's like suddenly there's all these, you know, action items you need to get done. And then there's just a long period of waiting on the publisher, which... My understanding, talking to other authors, is just how it goes. But yeah, I'm excited. I'll uh, I'll make a formal announcement soon. I guess the best way um, is, yeah, like I said, to look at my Substack and uh, and I'll make a I'll make a formal announcement probably in the next few weeks. And then yeah, you and I can talk offline too, and I'll tell you a bit more about it. But right now, I'm, you know, I'm uh, I'm 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 withholding a bit of a bit of the information until uh, until I get more word from my publisher. Happy to be part of the privileged few. Uh, as ever, Rob Henderson has been on Lightning. So um, let's do this again sometime. And uh, maybe, I know you've talked about Succession recently. Maybe we have to wait for another classic TV show for us to come together over. But, um, 
but yeah, yeah thanks yeah, for yeah. Getting- well this is the final uh the final season of succession so maybe when when succession wraps up we can do a deep dive into succession so. i have not even started it so i'll have to binge it but oh. you know well, but, and I, I, inappropriate of me to bring that up now it's like why the hell did you say that um it'd be also <laughs> interesting i know there's a there's a there's a new indiana jones coming up and it'd be interesting mm. to look at something like that compared to the 1980 and see what they're saying about the values of the broader culture you know like a mm. you know you did a similar thing about top gun anyway i don't want to make the audience listen to me making a, a, a plan on the fly so <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Rob, well, sounds good greg again yeah. yeah uh thanks again congrats on finishing the phd congrats on the mm. book and uh, let's see where it goes from here perfect thanks greg 